I, uh, it's kind of an interesting Sunday for me, two weeks in a row. I, I thank you for, for asking me to come back today. Um, last week I, I kind of joked about how when you're the guest preacher, you can basically tap into whatever you want to from what you've done. And, uh, you know, I, I had a plan coming here last week, and my plan changed in the midst of my car ride. And my son will tell you this, he's here with me today, my wife will tell you this, that I'm the kind of preacher who usually plans even months in advance what he wants to talk about. I, I, my manner of preaching normally is to go line by line, verse by verse, through a book at a time. And uh, I really enjoy that, but... Here for the second week in a row, my plans have changed uh, in the midst of coming here today. And part of that's y'all's fault because I came in here and I saw that on the bulletin it was Personal Evangelism Commitment Sunday. And so something I was thinking about doing throughout the week, but was not planning to do when I walked through those doors this morning, between that bulletin and my son, what you're going to hear that is the result of that. And maybe that's just what God wants me to do. So that's what we're going to do today. We are all called to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, we are commanded by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in Matthew 28 to go and not just talk about Jesus with somebody, not just invite somebody to church, but to make disciples. To make disciples of all peoples. That means Every kind of person, whether they look like you or not, whether they have the same kind of social status as you or not, we are all called to go and make disciples. And that can be one of the most intimidating things in the world to think about. Today we have sung, Take the Name of Jesus with You. I wonder how many of us are really prepared to do that when we walk outside of the doors. Because when we come in here, when we go home and even eat lunch maybe... It might be easy to talk about Jesus with people who are like-minded, but what happens tomorrow, what happens even later today when you run into someone who is not like-minded? What happens then? That can be intimidating, and that's what I want to talk about with you this morning. And hopefully it is, I said hopefully it's coherent last week, and hopefully it's coherent this morning. But before we get any further, why don't we go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this day. I thank you for Fairview Baptist Church. And I thank you that you've laid it on my heart even as little as, uh, what, maybe even an hour ago, less than that, to talk about what I'm about to talk about. And I pray, Lord, it's not me so much as it is you. Because your word is is, is what has the power to save. I can't do that. We can't do that. But you can do that. And you choose, you have ordained to do that through the proclaimed word. And we all have a responsibility if we are in Christ to proclaim your word. So, Father, I pray you'll remove me out of the way in so much as you will speak to your people through your Holy Spirit. I pray, Father, that we might walk out this door today maybe just a little more confident in the message we have to proclaim. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Like I said, I I usually preach line by line through a specific passage. Last week we did uh, Luke 18 verses 1 through 8. But today I'm going to jump around a little bit. So if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And uh, we'll we'll be a couple places in Acts and then we'll end up in in the Gospel of Mark. God willing. 
But Acts chapter 9 is known for one very good reason. It's where we see the conversion, the salvation of the man we have come to know as the Apostle Paul. Now, before I read to you from Acts 9, before we read it together as you look on, think about what we know about Paul before he was saved. We know that Paul was called Saul. We know that he was from a place called Tarsus. And we also know, as we're going to see it in a, in a few minutes, that he was trained as, a, as, as basically a, an up-and-coming Jewish scholar. He was taught by a man named Gamaliel, who was one of the most respected rabbis in Judaism in the first century. This man had credentials. This was a young man who had a, a career before him. A career in, rising up in Judaism. He, he was a man on the move. And he was so zealous. You know, we read in places like uh, Galatians and Philippians, when Paul talks about his own life, how he was very zealous for Judaism. He says, I am a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was a, I'm a Benjamite. I, I was a Pharisee. Um, as to zeal, you know, I was, I was more than my brethren. I was zealous for the things of Judaism. I was zealous for the things of God that, that, that in, in so much as what Judaism talked about. He was what you would call an all-star Jew. I mean, if we were to put him before us today, if we were to draw a picture of someone who was the prototypical super-holy Jew in the first century, you couldn't get any better than Saul of Tarsus. Of course, we know also that when this new thing came along called Christianity, called the way in the book of Acts, these Jews who were converting to believe that Jesus really was their Messiah, it rubbed Paul the wrong way, and, and that's putting it lightly, Saul. He sought to have people jailed. He consented to people dying. Stephen, in the book of Acts, chapter 7, he preaches, Stephen does. Early on in chapter 8, Stephen is killed by men throwing stones at him until he dies. And who is holding the coats of the men throwing the stones? It is Saul of Tarsus. Scripture says in chapter 8 verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And then on that day a great persecution began against the church. And part of that persecution was Saul going out. And so now we read, we go into chapter 9 and this is what we read. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul! Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus, and he was there uh, three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias said, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Now that's a familiar passage to many of us. And of course we know that right after that, he goes and Ananias baptizes him and and the scales, the things like scales on his eyes were removed. This is the salvation of the Apostle Paul. This is nothing less than a dramatic change in someone's life. And this is not someone who was seeking after God. This is not... Somebody who was seeking after Christ. You know, Romans 3, we're told that there's no one who seeks after God. There's no one righteous. There's no one who does good. And yet Paul was trusting in his own righteousness as a Jew, as a religious person. And he was heading toward the path of trying to fulfill what he thought was being obedient to his religion. He was trying to wipe out Christians because he thought they were the blasphemers. So he wasn't seeking Jesus, but Jesus was seeking him. And Jesus gets everyone he wants. Jesus isn't a a powerless Lord. He, He got Paul. He got Saul of Tarsus, who would later be called Paul. And on that day... Paul is is looking to arrest Christians, and by the end of that day, really in the blink of an eye, he is a Christian. He is a Christian. His eyes may have been closed, but the eyes of his heart were opened to who Jesus really was, Lord, Master, Lord. Sometimes we forget he's Lord. When he tells us to go and make disciples, he's saying that not just as a suggestion. He's saying that as a command from himself who is our Lord. And Paul made a career, made the rest of his life was all about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. His whole life became consumed with telling Jews and Gentiles alike. You know, so much with the Gentiles, he's actually called an apostle to the Gentiles. The rest of Acts is the majority of the rest of Acts is about his missionary journeys and the different things that happened to him and the different things he said. And we're going to look at it in just a second. But you think about Paul and this life change and start thinking right now about yourself. Have I had a life change? Am I different with Christ than I was before Christ? And if the answer is no, start thinking, do I really have Christ? Now turn to Acts 22. Acts 22, Paul has gone on multiple missionary journeys by this point. And in Acts 20, he he has this farewell address to the elders at the church of Ephesus. He goes bound, well, he, he goes to Jerusalem and there he's arrested. And 
In Acts 22, we find his defense before the Jews. Now, here are people who know their theology. Here are people who know the Old Testament. Here are people who, you know, if he wanted to get in a meticulous theological debate with some people, these were the kind of people to get in that kind of debate with. And he could prove to them through the Scriptures that Jesus is who he says he was. He could have done that. But when he got before the Jews, the, the Sanhedrin, the council, after being arrested, let's think about, look, let's look at this and think about what he did. What did he say to defend what he now believed and what he was now doing with his life? Look at chapter 22, verse 1. He says, Brethren and fathers, hear my defense which I now offer to you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew born of Tarsus of Cilicia, and brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are all today. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and putting both men and women into prisons, and also the high priest and all the council of the elders can testify. From then I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. But it happened that as I was on my way, and remember, on his way to put people in prison, approaching Damascus about noontime, a very bright light suddenly flashed from heaven all around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me saw the light, to be sure, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Get up and go on into Damascus, and there you will be told all that has been appointed for you to do. And we keep reading. And what is he doing here? He does not decide. And by the way, let me before I say what I'm about to say, let me say this. There's nothing wrong with a good theological debate. Lord knows I like to have them. I love talking about theology with other people. I like delving into the deep things. We should be as Christians more concerned with delving into the deep things because we want to know our God. But in this evangelistic opportunity, in this chance to, to defend himself before people who knew their stuff just like he did, what did he do? He simply talked about what Jesus had done for him. He gave his testimony. This is Acts 9, version 2.0 here. He's basically telling them his testimony. What has Jesus done for me? He's telling them what Jesus did for him. Turn now to chapter 26. Oh, by the way, before I, before I do move on from, from chapter 22... Verse 22 says, after he gave his testimony, they listened to him up to this statement. He told them, Jesus had said, Go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And then the Jews, verse 22, listened to him up to this statement. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. So that he told them what Jesus did for him. 
and they wanted to kill him. By the way, when you go out and share your testimony with somebody, they might not like it. Be prepared. They didn't like Jesus too much either. You know, a lot of us base our, our zeal for evangelism on whether people will like it or not. Don't count on people liking it. That's not the point of evangelism. The point of going out and telling people about Jesus is that God might use what you say to change their life. And I can't save anybody by my testimony. You can't save anybody by your testimony. But God can use it. And you never know what He'll do with it. But in the, in the moment, they might not like it. And these Jews didn't like it here. But we turn to chapter 26. I was getting a little bit ahead of myself there. And now Paul is before a different audience. Now he's before King Agrippa. Herod Agrippa. And what's going to happen now? Because now he's before Roman government officials. Okay? So... Agrippa allows Paul to speak for himself, and then Paul stretches his hand out and proceeded to make defense. Verse 1. And what would he say to Agrippa? What would he do now in a different setting, in front of a different kind of governing authority? He was before the religious authorities now, but he's before the, the civil authorities, the Roman authorities. And what does he do? Well, if we read through, and I'm not going to read through all of Acts 26... But let's start at verse 9. For, it should be said that he, he, he talks about his life before Jesus leading up to verse 9. And then verse 9 he says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priest, but I also went, when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme. And being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. This is a man who was out to get Christians. While so engaged, I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday. And look, we could keep going here. I could, I could read it to you again, but look what happens here. He's giving his testimony again. Let's skip down to verse 19. So, King Agrippa, I did, not dis, I did not prove disobedient to the heavenly vision, but kept declaring both to those of Damascus first and also at Jerusalem and then throughout all the region of Judea and even to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. For this reason, some Jews seized me in the temple and tried to put me to death. So having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying both to small and to great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to Gentiles. He's giving his testimony and he's using that to help explain the scriptures. Now, there's a man named Festus there who's one of the authorities, and he thinks Paul is out of his mind, if you look at verse 24. But Paul knows that King Agrippa is familiar with the Old Testament. He's familiar with the prophets. And so look down at verses 28 and 29, what Agrippa says. In a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, 
I would wish to God that rather in a short or long time, not only you but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am except for these chains. Paul, Paul was bound in chains. So, once again, Paul has an opportunity to defend himself. Once again, Paul has an opportunity to explain things. But what does he go back to? He simply says, he gives his testimony. Here is this man with as much theological acumen as you could possibly have in his day, and yet he's going back to the personal story. And he's, he's talking about Scripture along with it, but the personal story. You know, as much as I want to learn about the Bible and theology and become an expert in everything the Bible says, I'd love to be that someday. Being an expert on theology doesn't change lives, but a personal story telling how Jesus changed you, God uses that. Okay? And you may be sitting there this morning and saying, but I'm not Paul. I'm not Paul. Guess what? I'm not either. My story's not nearly as dramatic as Paul. I don't have nearly the theological background as Paul. I, what if they ask me questions? Uh, what, what, if they, what if they ask me something I don't know? I'm not Paul. And so that can be intimidating. Because what if they come back at me? What, what will I do then? Let's turn to another place. Let's turn to Mark chapter 5. And this might be the last place I have you bounce around to today. Mark chapter 5 is one of my favorite parts of the Gospels. Um, I won't read the whole thing. I'll explain the first part of the passage. It's Jesus, he's, he was on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. He sails by boat to the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a land, it's the land of the Gerasenes, the Gerasene region. There's a, a place called the Decapolis. It's these five cities there, and uh, we, we see it referred to as such in this passage. And when he gets to the, the, the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he encounters a man, well, verse 2 says, Immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him, and his dwelling was among the tombs. And that's such a, a, an excellent way of describing this man because this man, you know, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.1 that before Christ we are all dead in our trespasses and sins. And this man was the, the living embodiment of that. He was dead in his trespasses and sins. He lived among the tombs and he had an unclean spirit in him. Demons were dwelling in this man. And we know it's more than one because he says his name is Legion for we are many. Okay? He said, what business do we have with each other, son of the Most High God? And he, he doesn't want Jesus to torment him. And, and, and what happens is Jesus casts the demons out. They go into the pigs. The pigs run down the hill into the ravine and drown. Very vivid visual story. You can picture it in your mind's eye, these, this swarm of pigs running down a hill and into a ravine. Well, what happened was the man's life was changed. The man's and the people around wanted Jesus to leave. They were freaked out by this. He, he, you know, the pigs being dead now. He's affecting their bottom line. 
But in verse 18, we see as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed, past tense, had been, was imploring him that he might accompany him. This man wanted to become the 13th disciple. This man who had been demon-possessed wanted to join the rank of the apostles and follow Jesus around and be his disciple, which is a... Who wouldn't want to do that? Who, who shouldn't want to do that, right? But look what Jesus said to him. 19. And he, Jesus, did not let him, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Brothers and sisters, this morning, you don't have to have a dynamic theological background. You don't have to have answers to every question. Paul, the power of his testimony is, is what he talked about before the Jews and before King Agrippa. But Jesus is putting here this man with even no theological background. Before this, he was just a demon-possessed crazy person who used to hurt, gash himself with stones, break shackles. This man has no theological background, and yet what does Jesus say to him? Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and what? Everyone was amazed. Jesus essentially makes this man the first home missionary. Go home. Tell the people who know you best what I have done for you, what God has done for you, what great mercy He has had on you. Tell them that. Because Jesus knows the power of even the simplest testimony God can use that to change lives. Everyone was amazed. Think about who knows you best. Who knows you best who doesn't also know the Lord? The power of even your testimony God can use to change their lives. You just never know. It's not for us to know either. It's not for us to know the end result of an evangelistic opportunity. More often than not, people rejected Jesus than followed Him. People wanted to kill Paul. Others followed Christ. You just never know. And the question is, what has God done in His mercy for you? You know, I don't have one of those testimonies that blows people away, but I have a powerful one. It's powerful because of God's power that worked in me. You know, I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. I grew up with, with grandparents who were strong believers. My mom was a believer, still is. <laughs> but it was a broken home. Uh, it wasn't broken yet, but... August 11th, 1983, I've been in church all my life. I'm seven years old. I've been in church all my life. I go to church every Sunday, every Wednesday... I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't believe 
that this is the Word of God and that what this book says about Jesus is true. I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus came to earth, that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus rose again from the grave, and that because all of that happened, He can save me. But on August 11th, 1983, I went to a, a revival at my friend's church and someone asked, does anyone want to receive Christ? And I thought, well, I've never done that before. I, I just thought, you know, I've never done that before. I remember they had carpet for a basketball court in this fellowship hall. It was kind of weird. But that day I made a profession of faith. My friend, his mom took me home. I told my mom. We talked to my pastor that Wednesday night. That next Sunday, I was baptized. Now, there have been times in my life where I thought, was I old enough? Did I know what I was doing then? And I always come back to, yeah, I think I was. I'm pretty sure I was saved maybe even before August 11th, 1983. But I made a public profession of faith that day. And if you ask me when I was saved, I'm going to go all the, all, all, every day. I'm going to go back to that. August 11th, 1983. 34 years ago, wow. And has my life been perfect since then? Oh, no, it hasn't. Have I been perfect since then? Definitely not. But I can see God's grace working in me, through me, for me that whole time. Let me tell you, he took a boy from a broken home whose grandfather, who was the next greatest figure in his life, died when he was 13 years old. Put him in a youth ministry with a guy who invested his life in him. Taught me what it means to have a personal relationship with God, not just say, I'm a Christian. I see God's grace throughout my life. I think of every day what I could be. I think of every day what I see people I grew up with, what their lives are like now. That's powerful to me. It's powerful to me. God changed my life even at seven years old. Even at seven years old. So what's your testimony? Do you have a testimony? Here's what you need to know and believe to have a testimony. You need to know, first of all, that God has a requirement. And that requirement is nothing less than perfect righteousness. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Matthew 5.44 Just a small requirement, right? Be perfect. And of course, man has a problem... There is none, again, Romans 3, echoing the Psalms. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who does good. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all there. Unequivocal. Every single one of us has failed before God. We are if you go into Romans 5, we are helpless, we are hopeless, we are ungodly, we are sinners. And the Bible even says in Romans 5 that we are His enemies. And the result, if nothing changes, if you want to jump to Revelation 20, is the lake of fire. 
your name's not written in the book of life, then it's gonna then other books are going to be open, and it's gonna recall every it's gonna recall everything you ever did, and you'll be judged on that, and you will be found wanting in that day because you will not have been perfect. But I jump back to Romans five. But God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, the Son of God added humanity to His deity, and He lived the perfect life that you could not ever have lived in the first place because you were born of Adam. You were born with His sinful nature. And yet the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, went to the cross and was crucified. Big theological word here. Propitiation. He was the propitiation for our sins. What that basically means is he absorbed all of the Father's wrath against all of the sin for everyone who will ever trust in Jesus. He absorbed it in three hours as the sky went dark. And what happened at the end of those three hours? Jesus breathed his last, but across the way the veil in the temple was torn in two. Meaning the way is clear for me and you to enter into the presence of God. And that was guaranteed on the third day when He rose from the grave. He died so that your sin could die with Him. He rose so that you could live with Him forever. And that simple truth... What a testimony that is for anyone who believes. God takes a dead man and makes him alive. That's a miracle. Say, well, I didn't, I, I wasn't on drugs. I didn't, I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't have these testimonies like I sometimes hear. If God changed your life, that should be powerful enough. It is powerful enough. So who will you commit? to share your testimony with this week. It's Personal Evangelism Commitment Week on the bulletin. Who will you commit to share your testimony with this week? With whom will you share what God has done for you and how He has had mercy on you? And, before you can answer that, have you received His mercy? Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to Him. Come to Jesus. You come to Jesus, and then He will send you with a testimony. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day. Thank You for this church. Thank You for the change you have wrought in my life. I thank you that even as a child, you saved me. You showed me mercy as a child. And I see your your grace throughout my life. And I, 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 I just stand in awe because I know me, and even today I know me, and I deserve to be punished. I, des- I deserve the lake of fire. I deserve hell. And yet by your grace, for your glory, you have extended salvation to me. I have a testimony, Father, because of you. I pray you would compel in me even a greater zeal to make disciples.
I pray for every Christian here today that you might compel in them a greater desire to obey you as Lord and make disciples. If we know enough to be saved, we know enough to share. Father, it's great to know your Bible. We should be striving always at all times to know our Bible, to know the deep truths, to know theology, to know you more. You tell us to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Jesus Christ both now and to the day of eternity. Yes, Father. We want to know you in the power of your resurrection. But you tell us also, like, we, like, you, like your son told the garrison demoniac, go home to your people and tell them what God has done for you and how he had mercy on you. Make us a people who are ambassadors of your mercy. Don't allow us to be content with being in a, a church safe space, Father, but we, we have been called to go. We have been commissioned to be sent. We should live sent. And I pray you will make Fairview Baptist Church an embassy for your gospel. And Father, if there be anyone here today who's saying, I don't know that I have a testimony. Father, I pray that by your grace you might open their eyes to the glory of your gospel. That they might come to your son Jesus today in repentant faith. In obedient faith. So that you can in turn send them. You are a glorious, great God. You can take even the small rural churches like this one and like there are so many in this county and do wonderful, amazing things through them. And I pray you do that through Fairview Baptist Church. I pray you do that through each individual life here today. I pray, Father, you will compel the sinner to come to Jesus even today. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.